Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. It's a real honor and pleasure to have Maya with us today. I can't think of anyone in Washington who has more seasoning and experience on the whole question of federal spending, federal budget policy, federal budget process, the kinds of things that, let's face it, some people think are pretty wonky, but when you really get down and think about it, are what government is all about and really lie at the heart of a lot of the um, angst and tension we're feeling in our political system today. And what's special about Maya, in addition to her knowledge of the economics and the numbers, is she's very thoughtful on the whole question of political consensus or lack thereof in this country. In her work with the uh, Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, she's worked with very senior people from both political parties and has some good thoughts and is working on a new project we'll talk about a little bit on understanding the root causes of division and deterioration in our political system. So we're going to have what I hope is a pretty in-depth, thoughtful, lively conversation on all those themes. But first, I just wanted to say, welcome to the podcast, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be joining you for this. So the first thing I wanted to get into, Maya, is I think it's fair to say that a few years ago, maybe you might have been afraid of having to go out of business um, because fiscal responsibility was uh, having something of a, uh, I don't know what the word is, there was sort of a recession in fiscal responsibility. The view had taken hold that you know, we had much more ability to run deficits and spend than we had, than economics had previously understood. And the um, new conventional wisdom in economics was that there really wasn't all that much harm in running what had previously been thought to be unsustainable levels of public debt. Uh, maybe you could just sort of uh, give us your thumbnail about what that debate has turned into now, because we are going through a period where it's like deja vu all over again from the 1970s with large budget deficits accompanied by inflation and suddenly fiscal responsibility is back in style. Yeah, I mean, and well, let me start by saying, um, actually, the idea of going out of business is a very appealing one if it were to come from, <laughs> if it were to come from actually fixing the debt. Yes. But you're right. It's been kind of a dry uh, desert of a period for fiscal responsibility where we have pre-COVID come off of a really kind of reckless couple of years where we had not only huge tax cuts with people bringing back the untrue argument that tax cuts will pay for themselves. No, they don't. Combined with huge spending increases. And then as we've been coming out of COVID or even around the same period, and I should say, when it comes to COVID, that's exactly when we should have been borrowing. It's actually fiscally responsible to borrow at the right time. So during COVID, that was the right time to borrow. But this you know, tax cuts will pay for themselves, was then coupled with the other side saying, don't worry about it, just print money. And it's basically been a period, I would say, of massive polarization, fiscal recklessness, as both parties kind of tell themselves the story that it's okay to make, make up theories just to, to get the policy outcomes that they want, particularly because it's so important that their party win the next election. Um, finally, with new kind of free lunch theories all over the place. And yes, it it seemed for quite some time there that interest rates were low and inflation was low and 
it was kind of strange that none of this was happening, but this is a moment where we are painfully reminded that you cannot keep interest rates low and dump trillions of dollars into the economy without there being some kind of repercussions. Well, this is a, a bit of a moving target in terms of how the issue is going to look uh, by the time this podcast comes out. But what is your sort of best assessment of which way the uh, the the deficit situation is headed this year? I, it seems that sort of in a kind of an automatic sense, as the economy has come back and as the COVID spending has waned almost automatically, you know, that's why the president is claiming that a trillion dollars has been knocked off the deficit. Are you optimistic about the degree to which some of this is going to go away on its own over the next 12 months? Or is that really a little bit of an illusion? Well, I'm worried about two things. There's the immediate issue of inflation. We need to figure out what to do about that. And then there's the long term or medium term, really, at this point, um, fiscal imbalances that we have, which cause a host of problems on their own. And so solving them is actually different. On the immediate inflationary front, I don't know. I don't know whether inflation is going to go away or not. I know what we need to do is be taking as many appropriate precautionary measures and aggressive measures, mainly through monetary policy, but somewhat through fiscal policy to deal with inflation. And there's a difference between the uh, the fiscal improvements in the deficit that are coming as we knew they would, just because the economy is improving and the COVID stimulus is running off. And what we also need to do, which is commit to not passing more policies that would grow the deficit, because that would make inflation worse. And in fact, trying to probably do some deficit reduction, the kind of thing we've heard some talk about if they are to revive the reconciliation package. So that's in the, in the, the, the immediate inflation situation. And then the long-term, the fiscal imbalances, um, that we have trillion dollar deficits as far as the eye can see, that I continue to be worried about with or without inflation because those problems leave us very vulnerable to a lot of other economic and in fact, geopolitical risks. And we still haven't seen movement from Congress and really thinking about what kind of a actual deficit reduction plan they would put in place to help structurally rebalance the, the, the country's finances. Well, I'm glad you flag geopolitics, because that was something I wanted to get to in a minute. But just coming back to the picture you painted, you know, if you look at this in sort of a a big sweep kind of of decades, not years, there is this sort of eerie feeling I have anyway, that that we're just, whether through some kind of natural human process or or some other reason, reliving really almost in detail what happened in the 60s and 70s, you know, that as the uh, as the 70s concluded, we found ourselves having uh, believed that deficits were something we could tolerate on a year on year basis. And then the economics profession kind of gets surprised and there's a lot of inflation, which requires a wrenching recession engineered by the Fed to get rid of. And then, you know, we live on that, the, the wisdom we acquired in the early 80s for a few decades, and then gradually that gets repudiated, and we seem to be kind of coming all the way back to where we started. I mean, do you have that same feeling? It it, it really does feel like a decade-long cycle, like long waves that we're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and I think part of it comes from people are always trying to solve the last problem they had or are stuck in the frame of the last experience they had. Yes. 
And so people, right? So people who haven't experienced inflation really didn't think it was true. It was just a made up thing from textbooks. Yes. Um, and the fact that globalization massively changed our overall macroeconomic picture for a long time, but it didn't change the basic rules of math meant that some people thought, look, rates will stay low. They'll keep coming down, even though those low rates were the reflection of a number of things, including globalization and policies of central banks and in some ways pessimism about the future demographic situations. It wasn't all this good news, but people interpreted it as saying, look, you can borrow as much as you want. But I think it's a pretty fair principle to say you cannot borrow your way to prosperity, particularly in a budget like ours, where the bulk of what we borrow for is not investment, it's consumption. And there are so, still a few fiscal principles that as much as parties would like to wish them away or kind of free lunch theory them away, still hold. And that means that if we are going to spend a lot of money, we have to figure out whether we're going to pay for it today or shift the cost of that into the future. And when we shift the cost into the future, it leaves us with a weaker economy, many fewer choices, even when the dynamic economy is changing rapidly and pretty vulnerable on a number of the countries or places where we are dependent for financing all of our borrowing. So I think you I think you would concede, though, Maya, that along the way, we have learned that you don't have to be sort of like mechanical about balanced budgets. You don't have to. I mean, Germany has actually had some problems lately because they passed a balanced budget amendment and then found they had to get rid of it to uh, kickstart their defense spending. It's more a question of establishing a sustainable level of difference between kind of what you're paying out in interest and what you're taking in in taxes in terms of percents of GDP and so on. Maybe you could address that point, sort of what we've learned about how to define fiscal responsibility. Yeah, a great point, because a lot of times when uh, when I tell people what I do, they assume that means I'm a huge believer in balanced budgets. And the truth is, you definitely don't need a balanced budget every year. And there's there's really no economic reason you would. In some countries, they found it's helpful to have simple rules because it keeps voters aware of what you're doing and more transparency in the budget is good. But this kind of belief in a balanced budget per se uh, is not necessary from an economic perspective at all. What you do need is an economy that is growing faster than your debt. Or reverse of that, if your debt continues to be growing faster than your economy, that's when you're in trouble. And your interest payments will grow, even if your rates are low, if you have a lot of debt like we do now, if and when interest rates go up like they are right now, you're incredibly vulnerable to those increases. So for instance, if we have interest rates that go up one percentage point more than they're expected to, that adds a bill of $2 trillion in interest payments over the, the subsequent decade. So that just shows you because we borrowed so much, we are incredibly, it's like a credit card teaser rate, like rate <laughs> shifts will really, really hit home and, and make a big difference in our budget. But I think the best way I would define fiscal responsibility is there are lots of times we should borrow. But what we need to do is run our country in a way where we are borrowing for economic reasons not political reasons. And what we're doing, and that means you borrow during a real emergency, you borrow when your GDP is below potential. Again, COVID was the right example, though I think the last COVID bill was much too large and contributed to inflation. But th that's when you do borrow. 
You don't borrow when you want your party to get its agenda passed and you find paying for it inconvenient. And that is the bulk of the borrowing we do in this country. And a second piece of fiscal responsibility, I just think, is also looking at how we allocate our resources. For instance, we spend $6 per senior on every one we spend on children. That's not at the federal level. That's not a forward-looking budget. So when it comes to resource allocation, there's no right or wrong. Everybody will disagree. But I think at least having an understanding of where our federal dollars are going and making sure that it's not, again, just a response to political constituencies, but instead really thinking about the medium and long-term health of the country and the economy, that's how you achieve fiscal responsibility. So there's a lot in there, and I promised I would come back to your previous mention of geopolitics. So let me try it this way. Speaking of allocation of resources, we have a defense budget, which was you know, planned, if that's the word for it, on the assumption that we weren't going to have a land war in Europe on our hands. And now we do. And not only a land war in Europe, but one that put, pits us in tremendous tension as between NATO and Russia. And it's kind of one of those unexpected occurrences that one would hope you'd have sort of the resources in reserve to deal with on an emergency basis. How do you see that complicating the short run picture in terms of reestablishing fiscal responsibility? Isn't the danger that we're just going to borrow a whole bunch more to pay for defense and do nothing to offset that or render that more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, that's always that's always the risk, which is. Um, and even for things that weren't emergencies, but BBB, for instance, Build Back Better, there was a plan to borrow, oh, you know, trillions of dollars to finance that plan. Luckily, it's it's been shifted into something that, if it were to happen, would be more fiscally responsible. But every new priority, instead of going through the exercise of this is really important, we need to do this. How are we going to pay for it? We seem to go through this is really important, therefore we shouldn't pay for it. And clearly, the first is the right approach. So. I think in all likelihood, defense spending will have to go up. I would point out there are other areas of the defense budget where cuts could still be made. This is a a black hole of an agency in terms of being able to track all the dollars. There's lots of savings, particularly in um, kind of entitlement programs within the military. But I do think overall spending will have to be going up. And I also think cyber is an area where there will be ongoing demands on resources. Being fiscally responsible in no way means not doing the things we need to do. We need to do these things. They are huge priorities. It means figuring out how to pay for them. That means we can reduce spending elsewhere or we can raise taxes. But what it shouldn't mean is just saying we're not going to pay for it and we're going to have our kids pay for it instead. That's not that that is dangerous, irresponsible and kind of not what the like American ethos is of leaving the economy stronger for the next generation. So the other aspect in which this uh, global crisis triggered by the war uh, on Ukraine plays into this is the role of the U.S. dollar in the global financial system. So hear me out on this, Maya. It's a little complicated, but something I think about a lot. I mean, one of the things we found out during this uh, recent period where we seem to be able to borrow our way and borrow money endlessly without any repercussions was that the safe haven role that U.S. debt plays in global finance was a kind of a uh, you know, a privilege that we were exploiting. People love to hold our debt. And so it turned out we could issue a lot more of it than perhaps we expected. But when you enact sanctions on the scale that we have enacted in cooperation with allies against Russia, and when we talk 
about economic sanctions on, you know, ultimately possibly China if there, God forbid, some kind of a war over Taiwan. In short, the fact that economic sanctions have become such a big part of our foreign policy has led a lot of people to suggest that that would undermine the reserve role of the dollar and by extension, make it more difficult, uh, you know, create a kind of a fiscal time bomb for the United States. How do you think about that aspect of the, of the issue? Well, I think it's a great point. And I think about what things need to do to maintain this incredible privilege of the role of the U.S. dollar. And they are fiscal, first and foremost, in that if you spend that exorbitant privilege by being fiscally reckless, you will be the safe haven, the reserve currency for a shorter amount of time. And now, like you, I've translated that into thinking about what does this mean right now? Because we're seeing that wars, while still fought on the ground, which is a little bit of a surprise, are also fought through banks, right, and through the currencies, and that the uh, th that has been a particularly effective way here. And that's right, that there will be a move from other countries to moving their their money out of dollars, so that they're not sort of weaponizing, allowing the U.S. to have an advantage weapon-wise. There, I think there are a lot of things that point towards a reshifting of the global economic arrangements. And I think they create new challenges for the U.S., which we really need to think through. So I think I've kind of not answered that question well enough <laughs> yet because I like you. I'm still thinking through it, but it raises all these huge issues that show things are changing really quickly. Um, and there are all sorts of things, including crypto, that are coming up that that will alter the playing field for a very comfortable position the U.S. Ha US has had for decades. And it's helped us paper over our fiscal holes. Yeah, that's. That, I think that's a good way to put it, to paper over our fiscal holes. It, there was sort of a secret support for all this deficit spending that we never kind of acknowledged publicly, but it was the reserve role of the U.S. dollar mm -hmm. in the global economy. As you said yourself earlier, a lot of other countries, we could, you know, China is probably the most salient, but Japan, a bunch of others, were essentially holding our money at low interest rates because it was convenient for them for other reasons. And that kind of built a, it gave us an implied subsidy that we weren't too transparent about. And, and you're right. If, you know, the incentive to find an alternative to the dollar gets strong enough, somebody's going to find one. That sums it up really well. And I think there are more and more like slowly little pebbles of those incentives are being built up. And it's, it is hastening the moment when there's a real uh, challenge to the dollar. So I want to shift gears a little bit to some of your other interests, which have to do with what you've learned and what your organization has learned about political process through the lens of budget process. And we were talking a little bit before we actually started recording about a new project uh, going on within the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget called Fix Us. I think it's actually spelled with a capital U and a capital S to be kind of cute and look like fix us Clever. and fix us a very right. remarkably good uh <laughs> advertising there why don't you tell us a little bit about that project and what it's what its objectives are i mean so my commitment to fiscal issues and doing it in a bipartisan way runs incredibly deep this is like a passion for me um and i think the work is so important it has become more and more clear over the past years you cannot do hard things like raising taxes and cutting spending, which is what we have to do. And we shouldn't even be pretending that's the case. It's what we have to do. You cannot do that in a moment of such high levels of polarization. 
And so as we thought about this over the years and studied what made deals work and past deals work and built bipartisan groups, it just became clear that you can't move forward while we're just marred in this toxic political polarization. And so we built this project in order to really look at the root causes of what's brought us here. And so we think about it as the three Ds, division, dysfunction, and distrust, and trying to understand what the political, economic, cultural, and technological causes are that have brought us here. And it's really interesting because we're bringing together lots of academics, lots of big thinkers on these issues who are doing what they do in kind of university settings, writing papers, thinking about this, but also linking them to people who want to give home to the exhausted majority out there. So people will have a place where instead of just checking out because they're so sick of everything in Washington, will have a place where they can think about bridge building or political reforms or what kinds of things sort of through shared values and ambitions can help unify the country. So as if trying to fix the budget weren't difficult enough, we decided to take this on. But the real, the really exciting thing is there's a huge appetite out there. People who know things don't feel right and they kind of want their country back where sure Republicans and Democrats are different and don't always agree, but at the end of the day, they could get something done. And we're trying to build a group of citizens, a group of experts, and link them with a whole host of ideas to think about where we can make progress on this issue. Because we all know something doesn't feel right in our country right now. And while I'm sitting here pushing on these big, tough policy issues in, in the fiscal arena, other people are doing the same thing on climate or education reform, all sorts of areas, and nothing's getting done. And it's not going to until we fix what's going on in Washington and how we're able to work together. So I guess that sounds great. No offense. You're not the first to say <laughs> it. Um, and I, I think it's important that you're not the first to say it because we need a lot more people who are saying it and who believe it. Um, the, the concern I want to put to you is that what if it's you're right. There's a lot of data that shows there's an exhausted majority that is fed up with this and really wants something more practical uh, political environment. But there's a reason they call them exhausted, uh, which is that yeah. they're not they're not in the mix. They've gotten out of politics or they've, you know, they're very passive toward politics. The, the, the worry I have that I'd like to hear you respond to is that in some ways, politicians are giving those who are excited about politics, donors and voters, giving them what they want, that, that we've reached a, a point in our history where, at least for the time being, what voting and political activism is about is kind of expressing identity uh, voicing big sweeping ideologies and and not actually, believe it or not, governing the country. I mean, am I missing something or is that really the, the, the knot we've got to untie? Uh, I think it is the hugest, hardest knot we have to untie. And you merely need to look at the fact that technology algorithms that are pushing people towards the extremes only work because it's what people want. And I'm not going to go too deep into all the things we've learned in technology and neuroscience in this project, but part of the issue is, frankly, just the way humans' brains work, where we are in search of dopamine rushes that used to be on smaller, more regulated or friction things. Like we were addicted to cigarettes, but now we're addicted to outrage. Right. And I think we're only starting to come to terms with what that means, but it is, it is actually a response of our brains. And so we're finding that the more you give people this dopamine hit from feeling outraged, 
the more people need and want it. And so that is a very, very difficult knot to unwind. And I guess when I think about fix us, I don't think we're going to fix this. We don't be, pretend to know how to. But if what we can do is start getting people who look at these issues from all different perspectives, whether it's what political reforms you need, what economic reforms you need, or the bringing science of technology, what needs to be a part of this, if you get them all more connected, but working towards the one goal of how do we get this country unified and functioning again, then hopefully we will have breakthroughs from you know crowdsourcing the best ideas out there and hopefully giving a home for people who are exhausted from the extreme outraged part and maybe don't want to go march in the streets, but maybe want to you know learn a little bit more about some of the issues that may help to unify us. One of the things I keep thinking about, this country needs the next big moonshot. We need the thing that could actually bring us together. And, you know, Russia didn't, uh, uh, China hasn't really done it. COVID hasn't done it. But the situation in Ukraine has been more unifying than some of the things that yes. we've seen in the past. Years. And that, so we need to learn from that. What is it about that that's helping people who, you know, get very angry at each other and in normal discussions, feeling similarly about something? We need to figure out how to build on that. I have to say, Maya, when, when you started talking about these algorithms that feed on outrage, I felt outrage. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I suddenly felt my lizard brain fire up and, and it makes me mad. But no, you're absolutely right that I, I think another way to, to formulate this dilemma is that the, the institutions or freedoms of democracy are being mobilized in ways that destroy democracy or that work against democracy. This is, of course, the eternal dilemma of a free society is that it can be weaponized against itself. Well, well and just and the other piece, I'm nodding as you're saying this, the other piece of this is um, the exponential increase in the pace of change, that it used to be you could kind of catch your breath and think through it. But right now, I think it's Yuval Harari who said something about how technologists move so much faster than poets and philosophers. But as people are trying to figure this out and understand what is happening and how to change it, the new things that are contributing more to that outrage and those changes for us are moving even more quickly. And that's why I think a lot of pe people feel like we're falling deeper and deeper into the hole, even as we're trying to figure out how to, to climb our way well, out of it. Well, you know, you can't have a democracy without, uh, you, you had three Ds there. I've kind of forgotten what they were, but I'll add a fourth D, which is deliberation. You need yes. it to make decisions, even bad decisions, but certainly good decisions. You need a few seconds to think it over. And what the technology you're referring to uh, tends to diminish is the space and time for deliberation. And now what does this have to do with what we started on in the beginning, which is fiscal policy? But fiscal policy is a case study of the failure of deliberation when the complicated trade-off that is always presented between one good use of the money against another good use of the money. The easy trade-off is a totally useless use of the money versus a wonderful use of the money. When you have competing goods and you have to really think them through and you have to talk it over and make a compromise, but there's no time and space for that deliberative process, that's when you start having a situation where both parties just say, oh, well, you guys spend your trillion on your thing and we'll spend our trillion on our thing and that's how we'll, that's how we'll compromise. That's, that is exactly right, in that in order to do fiscal policy well, you need to have critical reasoning where you are able to look through these really complicated policies and understand uh, the details of them 
and how one thing achieves a different objective, how we might not have the same objectives. You need to have nuance, you know, the gray areas, not the black and white, not right and wrong, which isn't how the budget is. They're different preferences um, and they're all legitimate, but you need to compromise and deal with the trade-offs. So you need to have critical reasoning, nuance, um, compromise, lack of or impulse control. Um, and those are all the things that we're losing with a frictionless tech reinforcement environment. So the way that we're being trained to respond now is at odds with the kinds of thoughtful work you need to do on wrestling with issues like fiscal policy. So it does seem like a tenuous link between them, but I actually think they're linked very, very closely. I think the effect of one is huge on, on the other. So there you see, uh, I, I told you at the beginning that this was a wonky subject, um, but that we were going to make it interesting. And we absolutely did. You see, we thought we were just talking about numbers and uh, budgets and taxes and all these dreary things, but we we ended up talking about dopamine and uh, time and space for deliberation and actually rather deep questions of political theory and political structure. And we also tapped into uh, the real passion as well as intellectual candle power that Maya has has brought to everything she works on. And uh, I found it pretty fascinating for my part. I hope. Our listeners will as well. Maya, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the podcast. And I wish you well in everything you're working on. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. 